called Eat This, Not That, where the author literally just puts two foods side by side to show you which is the healthy choice and which is the heart attack waiting to happen. For instance, the book will show you that you could save yourself about 19 million calories and 80,000 grams of fat by eating a grilled chicken sandwich from Burger King instead of the, the deep-fried quadruple Whopper with cheese. We all enjoy laughing at nailed-it posts on social media where we're first shown a, a beautifully decorated professional masterpiece of a cake, and then we're shown someone's hideous abomination that some amateur baker has created trying to copy that first cake, usually with the caption, nailed it, underneath. If you've ever spent any time in a, a doctor's or a dentist's waiting room, you're familiar with Highlights Magazine, a magazine for kids. The one section I always immediately flipped to when I was a kid was called Goofus and Gallant. It was a comic strip that taught kids manners by comparing the two unfortunately named title characters. You'd see Goofus making some social faux pas, like hogging the last cookie for himself. And then you'd see Gallant in a similar situation, but he'd be doing the right thing, like sharing his snack with his friends. We like contrasts like these because they're effective teachers. They give us an example both of how to do something and how not to do that same something. Last week we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In verses 4 and 5, we, uh, Paul said, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In our text this morning, we're going to see Paul expand on these verses and give a, a description or a defense of his ministry among the Thessalonians using a series of contrasts. The ESV helpfully highlights those contrasts for us by using the word but five different times in our eight verses. And by looking at these contrasts, we can pick up five means of recognizing a faithful minister of God's word versus a false minister. Thanks to the internet, we have unparalleled access to an incredibly vast amount of preaching, both good and bad. So it's crucial that we be able to recognize who is and is not a faithful preacher. And yes, I, I absolutely see the irony in this being the focus of my first ever sermon. <laughs> Let's read 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. The first contrast Paul lays out for us this morning is found in verses 1 and 2. He says he came to Thessalonica not in vain, but with boldness. That Greek word translated vain here has nuances of meaning, and scholars have debated over what exactly Paul means by it. This is reflected in the different ways the word is translated in the various versions of Scripture. If you're reading from the Holman or the NIV this morning, you'll see it translated, without results. 
If you've got the New Living Translation, you'll see it rendered as failure. And if you're reading the, the New King James or the NASB, you'll see that they agree with the ESV in rendering it vain. In context with verse 2, which acts as the, the other half of the contrast Paul is making here, he seems to be saying that his coming to the Thessalonians was not empty or without content. He had something of substance to say when he arrived in Thessalonica. Indeed, in verse 2, he says that the message he brought them was the very gospel of God. And what was that gospel? Paul lays it out very plainly in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-11. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This was Paul's message wherever he went. That Jesus died for our sins as a fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. That he was buried, and on the third day was resurrected bodily. That after his resurrection, he appeared to a number of disciples. And finally, that he appeared also to Paul, who at the time wasn't even a believer yet. Notice, too, that Paul says it's by God's grace that he is what he is just as it's by God's grace that we have faith and are saved today. We can't earn salvation, and we certainly don't deserve it. We are altogether wicked, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags, Scripture says. No, it's by God's grace alone that we're saved. This was the gospel of God that Paul shared with the Thessalonians. And consider the circumstances in which Paul brought that gospel to the Thessalonians. The suffering and shameful treatment he refers to in verse 2 are more fully described for us in Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, Paul's on his second missionary journey. And he and his companions are in Philippi, where there's a, a demon-possessed slave girl whose demon somehow enables her to work successfully as a fortune teller. Paul gets annoyed with the demon and drives it out of the girl. And in Acts 16, verses 19 through 24, we read, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I don't know what constitutes a rough day at work for you guys, but a, a hard day for me is one where I'm not able to successfully troubleshoot a computer problem, or I get too many help desk tickets in all at once, or someone gets mad at me because I haven't solved their problem to their satisfaction. When I have one of those days, all I want to do is go home and, and crash on my couch and not do anything else productive. Paul and Silas were arrested in Philippi, publicly stripped, beaten with many blows from a rod, 
and then put in prison with their feet locked in stocks so they couldn't move around. That was their stressful day at work. And when they were released from jail, they left Philippi, they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where they proceeded to preach the gospel of God with boldness. They weren't cowed by their experience in Philippi. They weren't tempted to water down the gospel to uh, decrease their risk of, of further mistreatment. They preached boldly, despite obstacles and opposition. Can this be said for the preachers you watch or listen to or read as a regular part of your spiritual diet? Are they willing to go and boldly preach in difficult circumstances? Or do they only speak when and where there's an opportunity to increase their fame? Do they come in God's boldness with God's gospel like Paul? Or with a vain, empty message? Next we see that Paul came to the Thessalonians not with false motives, but with God's approval. We see this in verse 3 in the first half of verse 4 where Paul says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Paul was keenly aware that he had been approved or sanctioned by God to take the gospel forth as a pioneering missionary. And he was driven by this knowledge to, to keep his preaching pure of false motives. He specifically refutes three false motives here, and we might wonder if he just plucked those three out of the air at random or if there was something else going on. It's possible, though it's not outright stated, that the Jews who had caused so much trouble for Paul while he was in Thessalonica then turned around and leveled accusations against his character to the Thessalonians after he had departed. If that was the case, then Paul is, is refuting specific charges here. This is still a, a common tactic today, character assassination by opponents of the gospel. So Paul answers these charges. First, he denies that his message contains error. We see from several of his other letters that Paul was zealous for the integrity of the gospel he preached. In Galatians 1, 8, and 9, for instance, Paul tells the believers in Galatia, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, Paul says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This sounds a lot like what we would nowadays call trolling on the internet, where people argue and make outrageous claims simply because they love controversy and disputing. And if they're vocal and abrasive enough, they can get some measure of notoriety, which in their eyes is sort of the same as fame. This is what Paul is denying of himself in 1 Thessalonians 2. He did not warp the message with which he'd been entrusted by God precisely because he knew it had been entrusted to him by God. He goes on to assert that his appeal did not spring from impurity. In Paul's day, there were mystery religions and Greek cults that celebrated sexual perversion. Temple prostitution and orgies were common among these cults. 
temple prostitutes and, and cult priests or leaders were seen as representatives of their deities. So sexual relations with them were seen as a, a way for adherents to establish a sort of mystical union with their gods. That being the case, it was not uncommon for religious charlatans to come into a town or city and seek out women to convert for their own sexual satisfaction. Under the pretense of inviting those women into a deeper religious experience. In a sense, we still see this today with the occasional report of a, a nationally or internationally known pastor falling into adultery. Admittedly, they're probably not gaining partners by offering a deeper religious experience, but they are absolutely leveraging their fame as Christian leaders for sexual gratification. So Paul's appeal did not spring from error or from lust or from any attempt to deceive. The word deceive here in Greek means a fish hook or a trap or a trick. When a fish sees a worm inconspicuously floating in the water, that fish sees a free meal, nothing more. He certainly doesn't see the hook that the worm is skewered on or the fishing line leading from the worm up to the surface. So it never enters his fishy little mind that this could be a trap. He's hungry and food's right in front of him, so he goes for it. On the other end of that fishing line, though, is a fisherman who has laid this trap for a purpose. Maybe he's fishing for his supper. Maybe he's trying to catch a trophy that he can have taxidermied and hung on the wall of his den. Maybe he's trying to win money in a fishing tournament. Whether for food or fame or prizes or some other motive, the fisherman has laid a trap for the fish that will likely result in the fish's death. The fish will die so the fisherman can get what he wants. Paul denies that this is why he brought the gospel to the Thessalonians. He has no ulterior motive here. He's been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, that he might spread it abroad for God's glory. And that's what drives him. This should also be what drives all preachers and teachers of God's word. If a preacher is bringing the word to people out of any other motive than God's glory, he should not be doing what he's doing, and he is certainly not worth listening to. So we've seen that Paul came to Thessalonica not in vain, but in boldness. And that he came not with false motives, but with God's approval. Next, in verses 4 and 5, we see that he came not to please men, but to please God. In, verse, I'm sorry, in these two verses, Paul says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. When Paul says he and his companions were approved by God, he was referring to a one-time event. They had, in essence, been stamped with God's seal of approval. But when he says God tests their hearts in the second half of verse 4, he means it as an ongoing process. God was always testing their hearts. So Paul and his company were always striving to please God rather than men. This, wasn't, this isn't the only time in his letters that Paul was forced to, to, to deny being a man-pleaser. We've already looked at Galatians 1, 8 and 9, where Paul curses anyone who distorts the gospel to the Galatians. Right after that curse, Paul says in verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul had a strong sense of accountability to the Lord. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul is exhorting his protege Timothy to faith, faithfully preach the word. And in verses 3 and 4, he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul speaks of this as something that will happen in the future, but it's, it's always been true to some degree. People always seem to prefer those who say what they want to hear over those who say what they need to hear. There were a number of wandering teachers and philosophers in Paul's time, so people really had the ability to pick and choose which messages, and thus which messengers, they wanted to listen to, just like today. And an itinerant preacher could make quite a living for himself by saying what the people wanted to hear, all as a cloak for personal gain. He could come along and puff people up by telling them they're, they're basically good people and God just wants to bless them. And maybe if they would just plant some seeds of faith by lining the preacher's pocket, that preacher would be able to tell them how to have their best life now. Paul wasn't about that. We've already determined that Paul's motives for preaching were pure. He didn't care about material gain. In fact, in his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, Paul says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Brief spoiler alert for next week. Paul's going to reiterate this same assertion in the second half of 1 Thessalonians 2. And he says it again in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, and 8. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul was so intent on making it plain that he was not involved in ministry for the money, that wherever he ministered, he spent his downtime working with his hands to pay the bills. Now please be careful not to misconstrue what I'm saying here. I'm absolutely not saying that pastors and evangelists should work for free. And Paul is also not saying that. In fact, he argues in several of his letters precisely the opposite. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14, Paul says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, Paul tells Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, judging from the context here, that double honor that Paul's referring to is some sort of monetary wages. So in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul is clearly not saying that all preachers should work for free. A faithful pastor should be paid for his labor. What Paul is saying is that greed should not be the driving force behind a man preaching. And that greed will cause a preacher to bend or warp the gospel to win the approval of his listeners. So Paul came not to please men, but to please God. The fourth contrast Paul gives the Thessalonians in his defense of his ministry is that he was not self-seeking, but gentle. In verses 6 and 7 we read, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That nor at the start of verse 6 shows us that Paul is continuing his thought from verse 5. Paul and his companions did not come to Thessalonica to please men, and they were not greedy for money, as we've just seen. 
nor were they looking for glory, which we could just as easily call fame or praise or acclaim. If there's anyone in the New Testament who could have been considered a celebrity, it would have to be Paul, right? He was the first major missionary of the Christian church. He took the gospel all over the Mediterranean world with a, a dogged tenacity that's to be admired. His conversion story was probably passed around among the early Christians with wide-eyed wonder. The Pharisee who was violently opposed to the gospel was struck blind and then spoken to by the risen Christ. He was subsequently healed of that blindness and then he ended up taking the gospel to the Gentiles. In Galatians, Paul mentions that he rebuked the great Simon Peter to his face. And of course, he wrote a major chunk of the New Testament. It would be easy for us to dismiss that last point and say that Paul was just writing letters at the time and that he had no idea that they would be included in the canon. But Peter claims Paul's writings were considered scripture even during his lifetime. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That phrase, the other scriptures here, implies that Paul's writings were also scripture. Paul was a rock star of the early church, but it wasn't his desire to be seen that way. He didn't want the acclaim. Consider his words in 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul's goal was always to point people to Christ, that they would glorify the Lord, not Paul. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that as an apostle of Christ, he could have made demands on the Thessalonians. He could have strutted around and insisted that people call him Mr. Paul or fall all over themselves to fulfill his every want and need. He could have been harsh or domineering with the brand new Thessalonian believers. But instead, he says he was gentle among them, like a nursing mother caring for her own children, not like a, a hired nanny or a daycare worker taking care of someone else's children who may care for a child but not really be lovingly devoted to that child. And he doesn't just say a mother, but a nursing mother. Consider that the tender nurture and care that a nursing mother provides to her helpless, fragile infant. She is soft and warm and tender with the baby, providing sustenance from her own body. Notice, too, that Paul doesn't just say a parent or a father caring for their child. He specifies a mother, and for good reason. Fathers are typically the ones you see you know, tossing their infants into the air or balancing them on one hand or resting a bowl of Doritos on their back. <laughs> that might have happened. Dads are the ones who, who wrestle with the kids, and a, a child is much more likely to, be, um, to get dirty or to be scraped up spending time with dad than with mom. That's not to say that fathers don't love their children. They just love them in a different way. And this was even more apparent in Paul's day. The father would provide for the child and meet the child's needs and protect that child. But it was the mother who really 
nurtured and showered affection on that child. So Paul focuses his imagery on the mother's tender love in order to make his contrast very clear here. Paul was gentle with the Thessalonians rather than demanding their praise. Back in the days when there were such a thing as Christian bookstores, I used to spend a, a pretty fair amount of time frequenting such establishments. In the course of my browsings, I'm not sure that's a word, I noticed something about the covers of the nonfiction books. Now I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but I discovered that if the author's photo appeared on the front cover, I could generally assume that the book inside was not worth reading. I'm not talking about the, the little headshot on the inside back cover, just above the, the author's biographical blurb. I'm talking about a big old portrait on the front cover of the smiling, sharply dressed, often bejeweled celebrity figure, usually airbrushed and coiffed to professional perfection. These were and are typically the, the Christian celebrities whose personalities and popularity are bigger and more important in their own minds than the gospel or the God they claim to represent. Now, it's, it's true that there are faithful preachers today who have a high degree of name recognition. If I mention the names John Piper or Mark Dever or David Platt, probably not many of you would wonder who I was talking about. You, along with millions of other evangelical Christians, recognize these names right away. The difference between these guys and the, the folks adorning the covers of their own books is that we know these names and these men precisely because they are faithful ministers of the gospel. They rightly divide the word of truth and seek to glorify God, not themselves. They, like Paul, are not self-seeking. So far this morning, we've seen that Paul's coming to Thessalonica was not in vain, but in boldness. That it was not with false motives, but with God's approval. Not to please men, but to please God. And that Paul was not self-seeking, but gentle. Finally, we see that Paul was not aloof, but invested. In verse 8, Paul tells the Thessalonians, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. If we think of evangelism as a road that we travel down, there's a ditch on either side of that road that we have to be careful not to fall into. On one side is the danger that's commonly called lifestyle evangelism, where we we strive to live a winsome life among unbelievers so that they'll see our good behavior and come to us to learn about Jesus. Now, James does warn us that faith without works is dead. And Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So our behavior should absolutely line up with our faith. And living a godly life will result in openings to talk about Jesus. But we shouldn't just sit back and determine that we don't need to share the gospel with our words as long as we're living a godly life. The ditch on the other side of the road of evangelism is is sharing the gospel with words, but not backing it up with our lives. This can look like one of two different situations. It can look like the polar opposite of lifestyle evangelism, where our ungodly lifestyle actually contradicts the gospel that we proclaim. Or it can manifest as aloofness, where we're sharing the gospel with people, but we're not having any other involvement in their lives. 
This is Ray Comfort's forte, ambushing strangers in public places and launching a rapid-fire string of personal questions at them to get them to admit that they're sinners so he can then share the gospel with them. Now, I'm not implying that Ray Comfort is a false preacher. And God is certainly able to use efforts like his to bring people to genuine faith. But Paul is saying to the Thessalonians that this is precisely what he did not do among them. He wasn't there for fame or fortune. He had a legitimate affection for the people there. And this caused him to share his very life with them. Acts tells us Paul was only in Thessalonica for a few weeks, maybe a month. But it was enough time for him to be able to open up his life to them that they could see what he was really about and then proceed to imitate him. He didn't have a life in the limelight and then a, a separate life behind closed doors. He was fully invested in the Thessalonians. Preachers today should have that same level of transparency in their lives. If we can't determine the quality of a man's lifestyle, we should be very hesitant about taking in the message he's proclaiming. Unlike Paul, we just don't know what that man is about. Through a series of contrasts this morning, Paul has not only defended his own ministry in Thessalonica, but in so doing has given us the means to distinguish between a faithful and a false preacher. As we seek to feed our souls with solid preaching, be it on the radio or via podcast or online or in person like this morning, we should seek those messages that come from men who speak not in vain, but in boldness, who preach not with false motives, but with God's approval who speak not to please men, but to please God, who are not self-seeking, but genuine, gentle, sorry, and who are not aloof, but invested. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the message that saves us, God, that reconciles us to you. And we thank you, too, for appointing faithful men to share that gospel, to preach and proclaim that gospel, Lord. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we seek to feed our souls with good preaching, that we would be able to recognize who is and is not faithful to you, Lord, that we would be spiritually nourished and not poisoned. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.